Jack, Levi. The Book Club from Hell. Hello everyone, this is Jack with The Book Club from Hell. Today's a solo episode. I've read Behead All Satans by MNMDR, or Master Necro Mega Damage Rapeface. What I assume is a pseudonym, it's probably not on this guy's birth certificate, but who knows. Levi decided to sit this one out, A, because he's he's not so enamoured of the idea of doing fiction besides Atlas Shrugged, and even if he, if, if, if he were willing to do fiction, I'm not sure he would want to do this book. He seemed pretty unenthused about it when, when I proposed it to him, but I've done it because if you pester me enough on Discord, I probably will read your book. I don't think this is going to be a particularly long episode because I don't actually have all that much to say about this book. It, I'll go over why it's failed to make much of an impression. So a bit about what this book is. This is a self-published book by the pseudonymously named author, MNMDR. This person, I assume frequents 4chan a lot just by how this guy writes. It's pure Chinese. I also don't know for sure that it's a man, but I'm just assuming that the author of this is male since it's, it is kind of dude literature. I came across this book, one, because on, on the eternal dumpster fire that is the 4chan literature board, which I use to sometimes find books for this podcast, I saw this book brought up several times. I... And I eventually decided not to cover it, or I probably wouldn't bother, because it's kind of hard to get hold of in Europe. Getting it shipped here is a pain in the ass. The shipping cost more than the book. And I couldn't find a PDF version online, although I didn't try very hard to look, to be honest. And given that there are so many other books that we could cover that we get requests for, I just let this one slip by the wayside until someone came on our Discord server and recommended the book. I gave the reasons I just listed as to why we probably wouldn't do it. And they said, never fear, I have a PDF of the book. Sent it to me, and so I thought, no, thanks, I might, <laughs> I might cover it. Turns out this was MNMDR, the very author of Behead All Satan, sending the book to us to cover in the guise of a, a disinterested third party, or an interested third party, an interested third party in listening to us talk about Behead all Satans. Because I came across the PDF of this book in a slightly unusual way, in what I can only regard as a very strange, perhaps poorly conceived, guerrilla advertising operation by the author, I decided to read it, cover it. As I said, Levi wasn't convinced. This only worked on me. And yeah, it's, uh, it's a book. I'll give it that. It's obnoxious. It's it's offensive in a 4chan 14-year-old way. It's the sort of person who thinks that shouting racial slurs is the funniest thing on earth and is, is the height of, uh, I guess, transgressive humour. So uh, already you can probably tell that I found it pretty dull, but I'll talk about it a bit. I'll, I'll go through the plot as, as it is told in the book, in, in lieu of any other way of structuring this episode. 
So the episode might be somewhat incoherent, but that reflects the incoherence of the book. I'll, uh, I'll claim that it was intentional. So, oh, hey, before starting, I should say, I'm not sure if Mike Marr, author of Harassment Architecture and Gothic Violence, two books that we have covered on this podcast, is aware of NM, MNMDR, just such a fucking pain in the ass. So I'll just call him Master, because Master Necro Mega Damage Rape Face is uh, apparently what MNMDR stands for. Call him Master. I'm not sure if Mike Ma thinks very much about Master, but Master does seem to think about Mike Ma, in that one of the selling points given to me when uh, Master was trying to convince me to read this book was that this book... I think it was published in 2015, or at least the copywriters from 2015. Harassment Architecture was published in 2019, and there are similarities between these two books. The author of this book reinforced to me that you know, most people seem to think that Harassment Architecture was the blueprint upon which Behead All Satans was built, but no, no, no. It's the other way around. Apparently Mike Ma was lifting from this book, or at least so the author of Behead All Satans claims, whether that is the case or not, if you, the listener, are interested in reading this sort of angry young man online right-wing fiction, you you are probably better off reading something by Mike Ma, even if he did do it later than Master, even if his work is is maybe derivative of this. I'm not sure if that is the case or not. He did it better, so... If, if you absolutely have to read a book in this genre, then probably read Gothic Violence or something like that. Anyway, on, on to the book. So it's, it starts off with an author's note, which basically sets the tone for the whole book. He talks about how he saw Madeleine Albright crossing the street in Washington, D.C., calls her a genocidal war criminal who looks like the offspring of an albino goblin and an overfed Cornish hen from Middle Earth. Sets the tone in a few ways. One, this book is obnoxiously self-referential. Uh, the, the author calls it metafiction, which, yeah, it's a, that is a term for it. I call it irritating, in that I'm not sure actually what the self-referential nature of the book really is telling us. So thing, things like metafiction or acknowledging the author's place in the text is ultimately a tool. It's a literary tool. What I'm more interested in is what are you saying using this literary device rather than just the act of referring to yourself in your own text. And it does seem to be more that latter approach that Master is taking with this book, which I just don't find that interesting. He goes on to say, and I quote, Also, this book is not fiction. The characters and events in this book are confirmed, factual, genuine, proven, sincere, and truthful. Any resemblance to the past, present, or future is not gratuitous, and similarly, and similarity to any actual event or character, living or dead, is not coincidental, because the events and characters were taken from real life and clearly intended by the author to set the record straight before the great upheaval chews humanity into a wad and spits it out half-digested. At this stage of reading, and when I say at this stage, I think this is like the first or second page, I can't say I was feeling optimistic, but I wasn't feeling overly pessimistic because many of the worst quirks, quirks being generous, of Master's writing style 
weren't really on display here, or not to the same extent as they would be later in the book. He really loves his neologisms of smashing together normally a swear word and then some other word. You know, a swear word, then some other noun which is relating to whatever he's wanting to insult, like calling someone a cunt scab, a bitch cunt, or something like that. And he'll just string together five of these words whenever he's talking about Ava, and I'll get on to who Ava is, the object of the protagonist in this novel's hatred and love. And it's just really fucking tiring. <laughs> it's just, it, uh, it lands with a wet slap. It doesn't have much bite when he describes people in this way. And it's just a bit irritating to read. It really comes across as a, a slightly differently edited green text that lasts 300 pages. So at the start of this book is a series of diary entries, many of which are quite short, maybe five to ten lines long. This style does change later in the book, and the author acknowledges that it changes later in the book, which I suppose was intended to be very clever, but it, as the reader, I know that it has changed. I don't need to be told this. I feel like that if you were going to say something interesting about writing a book, or you use that to basically make some sort of point beyond look how clever I am, then it, it's fine to use. But the way it was used here was just sort of irritating. So already he's brought up the character of Ava. So Ava is someone who Master used to date. And I should add, so the author of this book in real life is... M-N-M-D-R, and within the novel itself, the protagonist also refers to themselves as M-N-M-D-R. So I'll, I'll just use the name Master to refer to both the author in the real world and the author of this text within the book. So much of the book is the protagonist talking about writing the book, Behead All Satans. Some of the, the roadblocks thrown up in his path to try to prevent him from writing Behead All Satans, while at the same time talking about the coming and eventually the eventual fruition of the collapse of society and what he does once it does collapse. So he's already talking about Ava, this woman that Master used to date, that he still has feelings for, but he also wants to kill because they're not together and because Master's so crazy. Uh... The the way that the author shows how crazy and unhinged Master is tends to be fairly toothless. So there's a section where he keeps getting cats and killing them because that's what crazy people do. Uh, he keeps talking about how much he wants to kill people because that's what crazy people do. He He assaults a homeless woman in what really does seem to be a reference to American Psycho. Much of this book does seem to be El Cheapo 4chan American Psycho. Maybe that's unfair. Maybe it's just because I read American Psycho relatively recently that it sticks in my mind. But there are many similarities between the texts, but really in no way is this better than American Psycho. So he, he's already slipping his 4chan ease into these diary entries, many of which don't go anywhere, which is another problem I have with the book, is that the pacing is non-existent so he'll he'll have many 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 diary entries where nothing really 
happens, and I'm not sure why they're there besides an inability to self-edit. He does. He has this section where he's growing weed in an not a friend's place, an acquaintance's place. We'll get on to talking about that later, and it just goes on for fucking ages and is really boring and doesn't doesn't need to be there. So for Chinese, he's talking about lone wolf mass killers, saying that they don't get anything done in terms of overthrowing the uh, the global order that Master doesn't agree with. He says they don't make a dent in the problem. He talks about how you can get a high score, which is the, the number of people killed in a mass casualty event, and says that these mass killers are often forgotten when someone beats their high score, and you need a long-term final solution to the issue of the global order that Master doesn't agree with. That global order being the, the liberalism in North America, much of continental Europe, Australia, etc., and already in, in this part of the book, he's having thoughts about inflicting violence upon others, but is not quite acting on them yet. In terms of forward momentum in the plot, he does act on these thoughts at points later in the book. However, there's so much of this guy talking about how much he wants to get violent and then talking about how he's preparing and he's finally ready to get violent and he's going to do it that then doesn't happen. You're just constantly getting blue-balled by this, uh, him, him dangling the promise of forward mo- movement in the plot before you that when it does come, it doesn't really have any impact. You just, because you're, you're now expecting nothing to happen, and when it does happen, it's just, it, it feels like a shrug of the shoulders instead of hell finally breaking loose when Master finally starts getting violent. In terms of his thoughts of violence, for example, uh, in the diary entry, Tuesday, August 19, 2003, he says, Minding my business, waiting on the platform this evening, when a nasty, cockeyed African bag lady scuttled up to me and gazed at my face. I walked to the other side of the platform, and the nasty bitch dragged her plastic bags the entire length, stopped several feet away, and continued staring at me, so I moved again. After a few minutes, the bitch started to make another run. I beelined for her. If you're following me, you're starting to piss me off. Without skipping a beat. Tough, she said. My adrenaline dumped and I wanted to cave her putrid skull in. Instead, I raced up the escalator, left the metro, marched a dozen or more blocks before I slowed down and walked the rest of the way home. I could have kicked her in the stomach and made her puke blood. The platform was deserted, so why didn't I kick her? You're a coward who loves drinking from the gutter of failure. Start there. Now, if the prose here didn't strike you as particularly sparkling, I, <laughs> reading back over this, I'm somewhat surprised at how good that bit sounds because I, I think the, the writing gets worse as the book goes on. Uh, I'm not sure whether that's because what, what, whatever this guy's name is in real life in writing the book got more into the character of Master as the plot, as, as he wrote more of the book and in doing so degraded his ability to write prose or I, I, I don't know but that part is surprisingly not bad considering the quality of the prose in the, the later parts of the novels he tells some stories in which people shit themselves and the, the Chan influence is just so intense for example Friday August 22 2003 
After reading a seemingly innocent comment on an internet message board, Abe Herring accuses the author, Ricky A. Tuskenberg, of being a plagiarist, a racist, and a covert homosexual pedophile. The situation escalates when Ricky sues for defamation. With the rancid pants shitting walls of injustice closing all around him, Abe is forced to go on a quest to prove his accusations against Ricky are true. If you don't know who Ricky or Abe are, don't worry, they just never come up again. I wonder whether this guy grew up in the age of, of random humour, but some of the millennials in the audience probably will remember that. Some, the Zoomers, fortunately, didn't live through that time of, of when just saying non-sequiturs was considered really, really amusing. These sort of things tend to move in cycles. Fashions in humour just as cycles as fashions in clothing, fashions in music, etc. So we might see a return of le random humour. But hopefully we don't. But it does feel like this author grew up in a time when that was present because I do notice the taint of random humour creeping into many of these these diary entries. And already, this wasn't that far into the book, the American psycho influences were just so apparent. For example, the frequent references to film techniques, he says, in one continuous shot. And in American Psycho... There are there are frequent similar references describing this describing that novel in in film terms, but again it just it's not done as well here. Now we get to we get to some plot here that actually continues for for the rest of the book, not just non sequiturs. So Master is talking to Ava over Hotmail, and I was getting flashbacks to being in primary school with my Hotmail address upon reading that. Doesn't feel that long ago. And the, the protagonist's name on Hotmail is Master Rapeface. And he's talking to Ava. She's responding. She does seem to still like him. However, shortly she will ask him to stop contacting her, tell him that she's seeing someone else and that she doesn't really want anything to do with Master Rapeface anymore. I can't possibly imagine why. I mean, it's someone who names themselves Master Rapeface <laughs> talking to people that they know in real life and not just spamming shit on anonymous message boards. I can't possibly imagine why someone like that will be discarded by another human being. Friday, September 5, 2003. Kill lizards, kill lizards, kill more lizards. You will help kill the green bastards if you do your job well. More of this random humour. Again, that sort of thing that seemed current when I was in early high school in the 2000s, but... Not, not so much anymore. This section of diary entries is, was probably the most reminiscent of Mike Ma, in that Mike Ma's books are also like Chan-like diatribes against women or minorities, whimsical, somewhat melancholy, dreamlike asides, hung together in a loose plot, but not not particularly strongly, certainly a stronger plot in, her, in, a, in Gothic Violence and Harassment Architecture, although neither of them were particularly plot-heavy books. However, again, whether Mike Ma came up with this style himself or not, he, he did it better in his two novels than it is done here. In literature, I don't demand that everything is in service to the plot or in service to character building or to world building. You can have asides, but if there are asides, then... They, they need to justify their existence. 
So, for example, there's an aside where he, he's written a song and it's just not particularly funny or shocking. It's the sort of thing that I read and it fails to make an impression. I've written it down here. So, Thursday, October 16, 2003. Dirty motherfucker crawling into your bed. Four different ways you can rip off his head. Stab, punch, kick, drive a nail through the nuts. But the only way to kill him is to give him a fuck. Rape to tape. Times four. Play button on your arsehole. Yeah, yeah. Play button on your arsehole. Yeah, yeah. Play button on your arsehole. Rewind a fucking face that's given you shit. It's things like that is like, that is basically the experience of reading this book. It's, it's marginally more, more coherent than that song, but not much. That's the, the standard of quality in this book as well. The sort of person who thinks rape is fundamentally hilarious. It's, it's obviously trying very hard to be offensive and edgy. The thing is, in terms of giving offence, I feel like when someone is clearly only saying things to offend you, the, the, the effect is so lessened. It's the equivalent of a toddler screaming and throwing things on the floor because they want something. It's how a, an edgy toddler, if they, if they had the mental and motor skills to say these things, it's what they would say if they were trying to get a rise out of someone. And because this book is so obviously indebted to American Psycho, I, I can't help but compare the two. For example, when American Psycho, when Brett Easton Ellis in that book is trying to shock you, he does it in a way that's not like, you know, a, a child who's dropped their pizza on the floor at Chuck E. Cheese and starts screaming at the restaurant. It feels much more considered, and it's done in a more controlled way, actually. So... Patrick Bateman will suddenly inflict an act of horrific violence upon, upon someone, upon a woman or some sort of minority. And it often takes you off guard because it's situated within a more normal environment, so there might be a chapter preceding it, which is less violent or almost aggressively banal, Patrick Bateman, at an endless cavalcade of dinners or lunches talking about fashion or something like that, and then it suddenly flicks to him decapitating a prostitute that's much more shocking it's much more viscerally uncomfortable than this book which is basically that song i read out that that level all the time you you very quickly tune it out and it it lacks any sort of cut we've got more i say recurring plot points we've got more things starting out here in terms of plot threads that continue through the book. So Master, he wants to make movies. He wants to be a screenwriter. So does Ava. So do these other people that Ava and Master know. So it's a guy called Tom, another one called Nathan, I think. And Master is extremely resentful of I mean, basically everyone around him. But the entire book is him just talking about how much he hates everyone around him, which there, there are ways to write misanthropic characters that can be very engaging. But apart from anything else, Master comes across as quite whiny, which is not... This, this is personal preference. It's just not something that I find all that interesting. M Master is upset that Tom, this guy that he he knows 
and Nathan, another person he knows, made some film script for a film called Bliss. And initially he's terrified that it might be good, but Master is, is then mollified upon reading it and saying that it's bad. And then shortly after finding out that, uh, that Tom and Nathan are making films and they're not good, Ava tells Master to stop calling her or stop emailing her, things like that. So Saturday, November 15, 2003. Finally called Ava. I emailed her the Henry and Sally script this afternoon, like we talked about, and I really just wanted to make sure she fucking received it. She answered the phone, and I said, hey, and that's when she said, don't call me ever again. I asked her what was wrong, and she replied, I'm seeing someone. Before I could say anything, she hung up. I'm staring at this beautiful death weapon. I won't use it. Too quick, too painless. Slit her throat and chop off her head. Slit her throat and chop off her head. Stab her in the arms and legs first. Try not to puncture any arteries. Let her know she's dying. Then decapitate that selfish cunt. That's where it's at. It's you. Wednesday, November 19, 2003. Ava, my love, my heart. You've got such an insatiable vagina for disrespect. It's only a matter of time before I finger-bang it into pulpy submission. She won't answer my calls, won't respond to emails. I will keep trying. Keep trying and trying and trying and trying. So you can see the author is a romantic. It's a, he's threatening to finger-bang someone into pulpy submission. I couldn't... The, the, I guess I will concede this is some effective character building in that Master does seem like the sort of person that I also would not want to be in contact with. I'm not sure whether Master wants us to identify with or somewhat like the protagonist of this novel. I find him aggressively boring, but whether that's a point the author is trying to make, just given the clumsiness of much of the execution of this book, I'm not sure. I have a hard time telling. So there's, there's a lot of fucking around in this book, but finally, when I say fucking around, it's mostly this guy telling you songs, talking about people shitting themselves as complete non-sequiturs, and then talking about the desire for violence. Finally, on Wednesday, November 26, 2003, we do get Master being violent. So some, some man tries to steal his drink at a bar. So Master follows him when he leaves the bar. The man passes out in his car. Master pours lighter fluid all over this person and lights him on fire and gets an erection and feels wide awake. And this is another feature of the story, which is show, don't tell, demonstrating to us how crazy and unhinged Master is that he, he gets hard when he does something violent. Uh... I mean, I guess, again, this is some sort of callback to American Psycho. I do remember a scene in American Psycho where Patrick Bateman is telling us about his enormous cock and how hard it is, and he places the decapitated head of a prostitute on his penis and walks around his apartment for a while. And that, like, that, that scene, much of it is the execution. In American Psycho, that scene was darkly funny because it's just so absurd. Whereas in this, whenever he talks about things that are grotesque and violent and darkly absurd, they just come across as kind of lame. He also tends to repeat himself with these things a lot, which in some ways you could say, well, it is, it's one character who might 
actually just so for example he keeps talking about necrophilia so you could say well it's a character that just wants to engage in necrophilia which is why he keeps bringing it up but the author keeps bringing it up in more or less the same context the same words in the same way and instead of reinforcing some sort of character trait it just comes across as repetitive so now that ava has has refused to have any more contact with Master. Master is getting more and more obsessed with her and is trying to find any trace of her on the internet and, and eventually does so. He finds, um, he finds a bunch of Hotmail addresses that Ava is using that he wasn't previously aware of, finds that using these email addresses, she's got a MySpace, which, man, fuck, I remember using MySpace, which made me feel ancient. Photo bucket, things like that. This this is a real nostalgia trip. He guesses the password to Ava's photo bucket page. Uh, and back from when um, Ava and Master wrote a script together, she let him use her laptop and its password was quack. Her photo bucket password is quack quack. Quack quack also works for her MySpace, things like that. So a lot of the book is master or at least this initial part of the book is master reading through ava's online communications and that would be kind of cool actually i do think that there is an interesting book to be written examining the detritus of someone's online life however this uh, to an extent this is pursued but not really in this book Anyway, a bit more about Ava. So her full name is Ava Baden-Yasnik, and she's from Slovakia. It's interesting that she's not Yasnikova, given that that's the feminine form of Yasnik in Slovakia. But fine. Maybe her parents changed their name when they moved to Canada, because that's where she grew up. Born in 1974 in Czechoslovakia. And Ava wants to be a writer and director, and she's currently living in Los Angeles. She's struggling to find jobs other than casual roles. Really, the development of Ava's character is through the eyes of Master. And so it's hard to tell, and this is intentional, I suppose, what Ava is actually like outside of the subjectivity of Master, because Master is obsessed with her, keeps talking about how much he loves her, but also relentlessly insults her in his head, calls her ugly, lazy, a fuck-up, a spoiled brat who's never had to work at anything in her life, untalented. And I I guess there, there are pieces of, and I did like this touch, pieces of perhaps more objective information about what Ava is like in that Master also monitors the books that she's ordering off Amazon and a lot of them tend to be self-help things, woo-woo stuff. I liked that touch again. It that that was the far-off hazy vision of a much more interesting book, looking at someone or trying to assemble a picture of someone through their online consumption and online accounts. However, the book didn't go in that direction, and that's fine. But this guy is not not me. He's not aiming to write the sort of books that. I find interesting, but that that part of looking through her online purchases was interesting. However, it also very very rarely comes up, unfortunately. There's then this whole thing about him feeling sick, which 
takes up a lot of pages and it's kind of its own subplot. It's almost like a video game side quest that doesn't affect the main plot in that it, it's fairly self-contained. However, I, I don't really feel like it needs to be there then. It doesn't, it doesn't feel all that connected to the rest of the novel. Anyway, it's a, he pulls a muscle in his shoulder doing bicep curls and keeps going to different doctors over it, um, like to, to a GP, cardiologists, psychiatrists. Eventually it becomes clear that it's thoracic outlet syndrome. It's when the nerves or blood vessels running through the thoracic outlet between your first rib and clavicle get impinged between the clavicle, first rib, or muscles in the neck. Anyway, that was caused by him pulling his shoulder, doing bicep curls, and that kind of that finishes this subplot. Again, I'm not really sure why it was there. You get some insight into this guy's internal life through how much he's stressing out over this illness, but it just didn't feel all that relevant, ultimately. That is so much of this book. It's sort of... Oh, no, it's a different problem to F. Gardner. Just, there, there are so many ideas put forward that are not really expanded upon that whenever a new idea is presented... I found it very hard to become invested in it after a while because it just felt like anything new that was introduced would be discarded, wouldn't contribute anything to the plot or the book as a whole, and therefore I didn't really need to care about it. it the, the author, over the course of 300 pages, basically trains the reader not to really care about anything he says. Anyway, there's more complaining about Ava... For example, I quote from Saturday, December 15, 2007. My dear love, even after your last dying breath, even as a corpse, you will somehow continue to be a butt-fucking procrastinator. Go on then, twiddle your thumbs, postpone achievement. One day, when your beauty and charm have run down, you're going to find yourself alone in that dark room. No doors, no windows, no exits. Then a thought, clear as water, a naked realisation that life is almost over and it has passed you by. You'll be all alone when this happens. Only you won't be. I'll be there. I love you. Now, here actually a subplot starts that does continue through the book. It's not particularly interesting, but it does continue. I'll give the author that. So he starts communicating with someone named Miri Bellalon. So he starts communicating with someone called Miri. And he gives us just a block of text from from their email chain, uh, corresponding with one another. And this is while he's recovering from his um, thoracic outlet syndrome surgery at his parents' house. The, the email exchange could be way shorter. Besides letting me know that he's already had surgery and that he doesn't like his co-workers, which I already knew, it doesn't add much to, to the book. And he starts meeting with Miri in real life. Eventually they have sex. Later in the book, it will start going into how Miri and her lawyer husband, and uh, I should add, Miri's Jewish, which he, he tells you repeatedly, how Miri and her husband don't want Master to be publishing Miri's emails in his book. Uh, so I guess this is where the metafictional aspects come into play. Don't want him publishing these things in his book. They try suing him. They get upset at him saying that he and Miri had sex, and so he publishes 
a note in this book saying that they didn't have sex, then later says, no, they actually did have sex and it was really bad. So this whole, this whole thing with Miri is setting up things that happen later in the book. My problem with this, though, is that I just don't care about the things that happen later in the book. So like, at least he's setting things up, which is an improvement, but it's ultimately a setup to a disappointment. I'll, I'll read a quote about um, having sex with Miri. After one hour of stupid chit-chat at Politics and Prose, I convinced Miri to show me her new place. I got in her SUV and minutes later we arrived, only a hundred yards or so past the DC line. She gave me a full tour. When we entered the master bedroom, I told her about how I had to take Liam to the vet because his front claws were ingrown. I assured her the vet took care of business and the cat was going to be just fine. We were standing an arm's length away and the sexual tension was incredible. I reached out to her and she responded by giving me a friendly hug. I pressed hard against her small frame and watched her eyes light up as she began to feel my power. That Then we kissed. It wasn't needed or memorable. I only wanted her pussy. And now that it's over, I only want to throw up. Her clothed, tight-titted body, it was just an illusion. Naked, she was doughy soft and her tits were miniature flapjacks, flapjack tits. The clarity after I finished, equally terrifying. She used to be a woman, and now... She's a beady-eyed liberal Jew dwarf with a roast beef vagina. I allowed myself to be weak because of the injury. Never again. My heart and body belong to Ava. Yeah, this part really felt like it was trying hard to be American Psycho. But it's just not as good. And then Miri gives Master her old laptop because she's not using it anymore and Master needs one. He says he'll wipe the hard drive. Of course he doesn't. Um, and he has a good browse around the laptop and at her old files and things like that. This is the part of the story where Master goes to live with not really his friend but an acquaintance named Darian. Darian is 39 years old, is in terrible shape. His house is a fucking dump. But Master moves in there, and then they decide to grow weed together to sell to dispensaries in L.A., I think it's in LA. Yeah, it's in LA. And man, this part is just such a fucking bore. It's more of these diary entries. The diary entries are basically only Master complaining about Darian, who sounds like a terrible housemate, but fucking move out then if you don't like him. And talking about growing weed. Neither of these things are interesting. In describing Darian, you get the impression very early on that Master doesn't like him. He says... Feeble-minded imbecile, you continue to astonish me. Amazing what a difference ten years can make. I'd like to crack open his skull and release the gallons of fermented AIDS and baby rape slushing around in there. Yeah, right, as if that would help. Darian also drives a, I quote, homosexual Prius, LGBT car. And they're, they're setting up a grow room for growing weed at Darian's place, but Darian's not helping, and so... Master complains to no end about it, which just reinforces the feeling that I'm reading the diary of a, a a whiny 4chan burnout, which may or may not be the case. I'm not sure what the the author of this book in real life is like, but it very much comes across as whiny 4chan burnout fiction from from the reading. And I like I'm not going to quote much from this section because it's extremely repetitive. But there's a lot of weed stuff. So I quote: 
V19, watered with small amount of veg grow. The room is a little too warm because I waited till 5.30pm before turning on the AC. Going lights out for 36 hours, starting at 8am tomorrow. Then beginning 12.12 light cycle. 8am to 8pm lights off. 8pm to 8am lights on. And it's, it's just pages of diary entries with this sort of thing. It just does not need to be there. I just I don't know why it's there. Yeah, and uh, in between telling us about growing weed, uh, the author says that LA is full of insecure people, which is shocking. No one's ever said that before. This part's like American Psycho, but in LA rather than New York, except with any of the humour, subtlety, shock value or insight that made me like American Psycho, even though American Psycho in many places is quite unpleasant. And... I mean, somewhat also reminiscently of American Psychos, there, in Behedal Satins, there are a large number of characters who are only named once. And in American Psycho, this very much fit, fitted with the themes of disposability, vapidity, shallowness, unknowability. And there are characters whom we know better, so, such as Patrick Bateman. However, they too are extremely hollow. You realise that even though you know Patrick Bateman much better than these, or you see much more of Patrick Bateman than these, named characters who only appear once, you don't actually know him well, or there is little to know about him. He's, he's very hollow. In Behead All Satans, there are also characters who feel very hollow or disposable, or all of them do. But I don't know if, if this is for thematic reasons. It's just because I don't care about any of them. Yeah, Ava changes her Amazon accounts, but... Master finds out that avayasnik at gmail.com has, uh, is an account on Amazon which also uses the quack quack password. She's ordering books about autism. Delivery address is France, so she's, she's moved to France. And like, again, the stuff about ordering stuff of Amazon is really interesting because you can see the character of Ava looking for reasons why she's in her 30s and is just not where she wants to be in her life. And that's interesting. And there was some emotional resonance in this part of the book with me. I'm, I'm not sure how, you know, how, how much younger listeners will identify with this, but I'm 30. I'm not exactly where I saw myself when I imagined where I'd be at 30 when I was 20. And Ava seems to be experiencing similar feelings. So there was, there was emotional resonance here. However, I do feel like it was in part in spite of how this book is written rather than because of it. It felt felt more like an accident of where I am in my life rather than rather than something intentionally written or effectively written. More actually in this part, he starts blanking words out, like in Mike Ma's books, or perhaps Mike Ma blanks out words in his books because he was inspired by MNMDR. Again, as I, I've, I'm repeating myself a lot here, but if this book was an inspiration of Mike Mars, then Mike Mars did it a lot better. And uh, harassment architecture and gothic violence aren't great art, but if you're if you really want to read Chancor, then you're better off reading them than Behead All Satans, which is mostly boring. Earlier in the book, I forgot to add, he hit a homeless woman in the head with a claw hammer. 
but she ran away. He has a wet dream about killing her. This is another part that felt American Psycho to me, but quite quite toothless in that he's he's describing a scene of murder in a style somewhat reminiscent of Brett Easton Ellis, but it just doesn't have the the finesse or that the, the visceral repulsiveness of some of Brett Easton Ellis's finer moments. So this is his wet dream about killing that woman. I waited till she entered the wooded area, then I stepped in after her. I struck her repeatedly in the head with the blunt end of the claw hammer, and the damn bitch refused to go down. I hit her in the ear and neck a few times. Then finally, she fell on her back. I bludgeoned her face well over 100 times until her features disintegrated. After the flesh and cartilage were gone, it was like pounding on a broken coconut covered in raspberry jam. After several God of Thunder hammer strikes, I caved in her skull and globs of brain ran out into the dirt. The globs reminded me of baby jellyfish. My clothes and skin were painted in blood and grey matter and bone bits. I became anxious when I realised she was all over my face and hands, and somehow the gore had managed to sneak under my clothing. Suddenly, I believed that if I didn't scrub her off in five seconds, I would instantly contract gonorrhea, chlamydia, AIDS, hepatitis A, B, and C. So there you go. Not, I mean, hep A. I mean, hep A is mostly fecally transmitted, but... Maybe you'd catch it in this way. I'm not. Anyway, I don't think this book is going for medical accuracy. Hep B and C, you can definitely catch from contact with infected blood. Yeah, there's just, there's just more whining about Darien, whining about society, talking about how society is going to collapse and how uh, Master is really looking forward to it. He keeps coming up with rules on how to kill people, you know, so as in rules on how to kill people in that. How not to get caught having killed someone. He's going on about what what I think of as Mike Ma accelerationism, but given that this book was written first, I will have to credit to Master Rapeface or whatever the fuck MNMTR stands for, I forget. And uh, I think Mike Ma should start citing Behead All Satans as an influence when he talks about accelerationism, obviously. Yeah should make clear his intellectual lineage. So I quote, Saturday, January 16, 2010. They want to legalise degeneracy while they destroy personal freedom, the family, private property, education, religion and national sovereignty. Great. That's fine by me. Let them. I believe in the divine right of death and have been wishing upon many stars for a time when I'm able to dispense it freely without the risk of persecution. Let Let them break the system if that's what they want. That leads to confusion, and then games, 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 games. Crossing my fingers, toes, arms, legs and eyes, hoping the great upheaval takes place during a record-breaking summer heat wave in the not-so-distant future. Flies, 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 and more flies. Maggots too. Millions, billions, trillions, reeking death. A maze of sun-baked corpses. My God, the squirming. The sound of those little darlings feasting on dead meat will be a clearly audible gem, a treasure to the blind and dying, or anyone with decent hearing, and that the end end times have arrived and they are very, very, very hungry. Through this, there are still these constant references to growing weed, or references to the trivialities of growing weed, and it's still boring. 
Eventually though, the effort has yielded three and a quarter pounds of weed. Darian is upset that it's so little. I don't smoke weed, I don't know if that's much or not, but yeah, whatever. Darian's upset though that it's it's not enough. Master sells this weed to dispensaries, and um, he plans on keeping the money, not giving it to Darian. He's wanting to leave Darian's house now. In preparation of leaving, he's been collecting 19 days of shit and piss in a dog food container. And upon leaving Darian's, he covers Darian, the interior of Darian's house with the piss and shit, changes the Wi-Fi password, and leaves. So, um... I can only assume that the author of Behead All Satans is not house-trained. And that, that ends this section of the book, the diary entry section. The diary entries, unfortunately, do make a reappearance, but we do have a brief respite from them. So this next section is called Fallout, and it's longer, longer stretches of writing rather than these diary entries. He returns to Washington, D.C. from Los Angeles. Darian's already emailing Master... Uh, so Master gets into Darian's email account, changes the password, deletes everything, keeps talking about killing Darian, calling various people and things gay, etc., etc. It's pretty boring. It's. <laughs> I do wonder... So from, from reading books for this podcast, uh, for, for a, a... Has it been 18 months? For perhaps more than 18 months now, I've been reading intentionally extreme books on a very regular basis. I do wonder whether it's a universal response or if it's just me being burned out that when people when people are intentionally, in what I regard to be a fairly adolescent, adolescent way, offensive, whether me feeling bored by it is what most people would feel or whether it really is just because I'm too immersed in this sort of shit for, for really no good reason, just for, for being a court jester on the internet to a small audience, whom I love, I should add. But, I mean, I, either way, I guess this, this episode is from my perspective. And from my perspective, it's just so fucking boring. Jesus, I wish he'd stop with this shit. If he publishes another book, unless it is dramatically different from this one, I'm not touching it. And it's just more talk now about wanting to kill Ava, wanting to rape her, wanting to rape her dead body. Uh, Nathan contacts Master and asks if they want to write a screenplay together, so they write a horror movie called Hellhole, and Nathan's shopping it around. People are expressing interest. Later in the book, it falls through. And so Master thinks about killing Nathan as well. Then this section ends, and we've got a new section called Lull. It's, it's just so fucking obnoxious. So I'll read out a section of Lull, which I think will be fairly self-explanatory as to why I found it quite obnoxious. Obviously, this isn't the end. There are many more pages left to turn. Stories never really end. Writers sit there in front of the work, and they decide just to stop writing and fussing. They choose a convenient place on the last page, declare at the end, then cross their fingers and publish. Fictional characters live in your head for a while, but even they fade into the background and become the shadows of shadows of shadows. The good ones do anyway. Real life characters are quite different. They keep on going well after the final word has been written, if they're still breathing. 
The story isn't over until the central character is dead, and since Ava is very much alive, I will crack the fuck on. I am not the central character of this story. So in this section, there are some things that are interesting. So in terms of writing stories, I wouldn't say that authors, or at least not all of them, will just pick some arbitrary spot in a character's plot arc and say, okay, this is where the story ends. Oftentimes there is, they, they pick the ending to make some sort of point or to better illustrate whatever point they're trying to make using the, the medium or the tool of the novel. In terms of editing and tweaking a book, I do think that like a book is finished when the author throws up their hands and say, I'm done, I, d- I can't tweak this anymore, I just don't want to. It's, it's really when they give up on the book rather than when it's perfect. And, yeah, apart from that, the whole thing about oh, Ava's the central character of this book, she's very much alive, is just kind of not... At least that's not conveyed in the rest of the story. It's one thing to tell, tell the audience, oh, Ava is the central character, and then spend the entire book with her prominent, I guess, in that Master continuously whines about her, but she's not driving the plot along in any meaningful way besides being someone whom Master wants to kill. There is also a part of the book after Ava where she, uh, she, she's not really driving the plot. Maybe this is Master trying to do a, an unreliable narrator sort of thing. I'm not sure. Either way, it, it, it just it feels like he's trying to be smarter than he is. So I'm skipping a few parts here. Now it's 2012, or the end of 2012. Master returns to LA and meets a beautiful woman named Charlotte. The next section of the book will be with Charlotte a lot, although Charlotte will remain a presence in this novel until the end. So this is, this is another plot point that actually sticks around. So Charlotte's Canadian, she's really beautiful, she's older than, uh, than Master, she, she, uh, she plays in a band called Vorag, spelled V-O-R-A-G-G-H-H, exclamation mark, all caps. After, after the, uh, this band plays, she and M go out for a drink, um, he keeps talking about how beautiful and amazing she is, thinks about punching her in the nose, they kiss, exchange email addresses, and eventually Charlotte invites M to come and stay at her place in Canada, to come visit, and um, that's, that's, uh, that's what he does. He also sends Charlotte a copy of this book, this very book, Behead All Satans, isn't that wild that the book you're reading in real life shows up within the book that you're reading? This is unprecedented. It's not as if If On A Winter's Night A Traveller had existed before this book and was done much better. Italo Calvino, the, uh, the pale imitation of MNMDR. And this time in, in uh, Montreal with Charlotte is great. She is basically the big titty goth GF meme um, she's misanthropic, she hiles, she seems vaguely gothic, she wears the pants in the relationship, she's making the money, she makes Master do the housework, she likes being choked. Um, uh, <laughs> I think I'm getting an insight into um, what the author likes in terms of women. 
There is, however, trouble in paradise. So there's a woman named Nicole Martell, who's a lesbian who performs with Charlotte and keeps taking Charlotte out for drinks. Uh, Charlotte being perfect is also bisexual, I should add. And I quote, talking about how awful Nicole is, She keeps taking my Charlotte for quick drinks or whatever after practice or rehearsals or fire-twirling bullshit. These quick drinks are in danger of turning into something else. Tonight, Charlotte blamed the snow for making her late. But after a glass of wine and some light questioning, she admitted to having a few with that sneaky bitch. The sneaky bitch is planning to move in for the kill. I won't let it get to that point. All those felching scenarios ricocheting in her sneaky, cunting bitch head. I'll explode in her face like a dick full of semen. And that won't be good for her because she's a gay, homo-queer lesbian. Troublesome dykes. They ruined feminism by hating on the cock. That's why women are flocking to Durka Durka Muhammad Jihad in record numbers. They're genetically driven to be controlled by the penis. Men are not interested in fat, ugly, old yeti pussy. Hypergamy is a two-way street. The loud-mouthed nasty bitches went ahead and created a mountain out of a molehill, fanatically prophesying, fanatically prophesying that every man on the planet, straight A through queer Z, secretly wants to rape all women. It's true, though. We do. And someday we will. Admiral Akbar. When I said earlier in this episode that the prose gets worse as the book goes on, that's, that's the, the quality of the prose at this stage of the book. Imagine reading that for 300 pages, and you can probably understand why I'm, I'm pretty irritated with this book. <laughs> it's pretty fucking bad. Oh, when, I mean, no. When I say 300 pages, it wasn't 300 pages because there are tens of pages of what look like MS Paint line drawings, which, in terms of this book as an artistic statement, are terrible. In terms of me not having to read as many pages of this man's prose, are quite good. They're very welcome. So I'm somewhat ambivalent about their inclusion. Anyway, he wants to drive off Nicole from Charlotte. He's, uh, he wants to chase her away from his prize. And so he starts planning on, on how he should do that. And in terms of his plan, he initially says, oh, should I talk to her like an adult? And says, no, 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 I can't do that. So I quote, I'm with Woodson. She's quite correct in her value judgment. Young people really are the most open. They are indeed. Young people are the most open, especially when you spread their legs wide and tie them down with a strong length of skin-gouging bondage rope. Sexual abuse is the best way to break someone. Opportunity is the problem. I acquired pepper spray because that sneaky bitch is asking for it. Okay, but what now? What should I do? What approach should I take? The four Bs will guide me. Blind, beat, bind, buttfuck. And, um, yeah, anyway, eventually he's walking around on New Year's Eve, sees Nicole walking on the street as well, kicks her in front of a car, gets an erection, spends the rest of the night with Charlotte, has a great night. So that's, that's the end of that, that, uh... Side quest. I really do feel these are side quests more than subplots in that they're much more like video game side quests in that they tend not to affect the rest of the world around them. They're just these diversions that the author, I guess, supposes the reader will enjoy rather than things that feed towards the plot as a whole. Anyway, Friday, January 4, 2013, Ava is dead, or at least... She's, she's said to be dead. Should I? I was about to say spoilers, but this entire episode's been a spoiler and you shouldn't read this book. So Ava has faked her death. 
and Master thinks that she's dead, but she actually isn't. But going through Ava's websites using her um, her email address and the quack quack password, Master finds a message she sent to IMDb, which sheds some light on her relationship with Master. So it says, "Hi there." I love IMDb and thinks and think it provides a wonderful service. However, I would like my entry, Ava Yasnik, to be deleted. I'm dealing with a long-standing internet stalker and have been advised by experts on this matter that my online presence be as minimal as possible. I'm happy to discuss this in detail and can be reached at blanked out. Thanks, Ava. Sheesh, what a goddamn drama whore though. Hell, what a trope. The stupid dramatic irony. Let's be realistic. I'm the cause of her trauma. I'm the reason she killed herself. This book, this unfinished book, is the straw that broke the lemur's back. My clumsy writing drove an intelligent human female to give up and commit suicide. Words, words, mere words forced Ava Yasnik to self-terminate. And you know what? That's way better than murder. Bless you, Ava. It's so much better. Farewell. So remember how I said earlier that he sent a draft of Behead All Satans to Ava? Well... He's saying now that's what caused her to kill herself. And this counts as metatextuality. Anyway, Charlotte asks Master to move in from her. And Charlotte's really cool. She just continues to be the big titty goth GF meme. Master continues to love spending time with her. And she keeps better. Oh, she keeps better. She keeps getting better. For example, Master receives an email from Nathan telling him that nobody's interested in the hellhole script. Charlotte just tells Master to kill Nathan. And, uh, yeah, he's, uh, the author seems to have a dominant big titty goth girlfriend fantasy. He wants to get dominated by, a, by an older woman who's probably got spiderweb tattoos on her elbows and does fire twirling or something like that. Then we get this, this chapter called Fallout 2, which is also pretty obnoxious. I'll read a quote from it and then give my thoughts on it, which... If you've made it this far in the episode, are probably pretty predictable. I'm not going to be saying much new about this book. I'm just going to be listing reasons as to why I didn't enjoy it. So I quote, Hello, reader. Three things. First, an apology. The layout of this material is unintentionally deceitful, and I sincerely apologize for any confusion that might have caused. I wrote Author's Note, Fallout, and Lull in early August 2012. The rest of the book is chronological and spoiler-free. Messing with the continuity, adding footnotes, or editing the content in a way that warns you, the astute reader, the inquisitive fella, I should say, certain words in this book that I'd get in trouble for repeating out loud, I'm just going to repeat, uh, replace with fella. So the inquisitive fella, the troublesome fella, would utterly disrupt its ultimate revelationary effect and clutter your view of my enemy's brilliant deception and the extent of their reach into my life. Second, I am not a mind control victim. Third, I'm not a victim. He also tells us that he's completely in control of his actions. He kills people because he wants to. He's not under any sort of mind control. He has enemies. He's killed some of their subordinates as subordinates. He also goes on about how much he likes to use the word fella. Fella in this context is the the N-word. He says it's not a racial slur. It refers to bad people, the type of people that Master doesn't like. And reading this, I was just pure fucking 4chan. And I don't actually really want to spend much time on 4chan. However, I was subjected to 300-odd pages of 4chanese in the form of this novel. More meta stuff, I quote. 
Going into the third week of March, my life was tops. I was living with Charlotte in our favourite city and doing a job that made me feel good about my place in the world. Like, not quite midway through the movie, when things seem to be going great for the protagonist. You know, that tiny little pocket of hope he inhabits right before the, consp the conspiring elements, the antagonist, the universe, whatever. Right before those dark forces ignite the central conflict by lighting his cock on fire with napalm and squirting corrosive diarrhoea in his mouth. I will say that this part coming up is actually something of a story and it's an improvement on the rest of the book for that reason. Dreams that Charlotte was very late home from work, unable to be reached, and Master flips out that this was just, this was just a daydream. But then she comes home in the afternoon. She's been beaten up really badly. Master cleans her in the bath. She refuses to go to hospital. And apparently a man who attended Charlotte's exercise class beat her up and carved his name into the back of her head. So Master gets a gun. Or I should say he's been carrying a gun around this entire book. I haven't mentioned it before. He keeps bringing it up in the text. So he gets his pistol, goes out to find this man. So he's got his gun. He's thinking about shooting this assailant in the head, fucking the wound. He eventually finds his way to this guy's house. And when he's thinking about how to break into his house, so he creeps into his, um, to his garden, starts ascending some steps to the back of the house. But then he passes out, or he faints, and... Um, breaks a window by accident, setting off an alarm. So he runs away, gets into a taxi back to Charlotte's. But then there's no sign of Charlotte. In my notes, it says, was Charlotte just in his head? I will be pissed off if she were. I don't think she was. I think Charlotte actually was real. Anyway, Charlotte's number is deleted from his phone. He's memorized the number, but he calls it and it's not in service when he tries calling it. Any evidence, really, of her having lived in that apartment is gone, and then he talks about how much he loves murder, which which is boring. But for the most part, this chapter, it's not great, but something is happening. There is some sort of mystery. So I did enjoy this more than the book up to this point. And it becomes a lot more conspiratorial now in that some force, a Pynchon-esque them, is trying to manipulate master and make him do things that they want to and charlotte was one of their agents so anyway the next morning he wakes up he's not going to go searching for charlotte because it's what they want him to do and so he drives back into the u.s from canada and in doing so he uh, he goes to visit ava's parents he wants to ask where ava's grave is so that he can visit it and desecrate it and when he calls ava's mum he he finds out that ava is actually alive uh, because his mum, uh, his mum, her mum slips up and mentions that she's still alive. We then get a um, a chapter called "Be Honest," which just felt so lame. I'll read a quote. Was that too much of a narrative shift between the dated entries and the traditional prose? Gosh, I hope not. It's just that certain book critics hate it when the author changes gears almost halfway through the story, and by certain book critics. I'm in fact talking about disgustingly obese, tumour-riddled, spinster bitch cunts. When the great upheaval happens, and it will happen, I'm going to disembowel so many of you fat fucks, so many dead fat fucks, dead fat fucks everywhere. I'm talking American dead fat fucks. There's a lot of dead fat fucks. That's a lot of whale meat. 
Hot damn, with all that saturated human lard laying around, I might be tempted to low and slow a rack of gluteals with a jumble of sparkling titty kebabs. This is a pretty lame attempt to head off criticism, so changing style midway through a book isn't something that I innately dislike. It's very hard to do and needs to be earned, but if you do it properly, then it, it can work really well. For, for example, I brought up If on a Winter's Night a Traveller earlier by Italo Calvino. This book changes style regularly. Every chapter, I think, it changes style. So, you know, there, there's more than the, the handful of gear changes that take place in Behead All Satans. However, the stylistic changes are an integral part of the book's plot. They're also unified with themes and symbols that continue to arise in each of the book's new forms. It's a change that's in service to the book's narrative and themes, rather than in Behead All Satans, where it comes across as extremely unfocused. Just referring to the fact that you've written an unfocused book doesn't prevent criticism of that book's lack of focus. Just because you're aware that you've written something that's unfocused doesn't suddenly make it compelling. It, you know, it, it just means that you're aware that the book needs tightening up. The, this Be Honest chapter was just sort of irritating, and not irritating in the sort of way that makes me think. You know, it, does, it doesn't roughen the surface. It's, it's kind of like a fly buzzing in your ear. It's momentarily irritating, and then you quickly forget about it. So this next sector, section is called Questions and Answers, and this part's in the style of a... Uh, a brief question posed, followed by a longer answer. So he says that there's been no news of Nicole Martel. In case you've forgotten, that was the woman who was trying to seduce Charlotte, whom our hero kicked in front of traffic. Is he trying to go American Psycho here as well, or more the film than the book, you know, where it calls into question whether Patrick Bateman actually did kill those people that he claims to have killed? There's the obligatory aside in this sort of book about the modern Western female, about hormonal contraception. I do wonder, is this mandated by law to be part of all lit-core books that they complain about hormonal contraception? It seems to be an issue that occupies a lot of mental bandwidth for the sort of people who write things like this. I quote, While I'm on the subject of lady parts, I'd like to mention the... the stellular hyperdrive masculization of the average American female in this second decade of the 21st century. There are numerous daily reports of their monstrously huge lantern pumpkin man jaws whipping through college campuses, shopping malls and suburban town centres. It's not funny. Every day they're knocking over displays, raking the paint jobs of parked cars and barbarically cutting defenceless children and small animals with those damn serrated mandibles. This is America's newest endemic disease. That's why healthy preconception nutrition is, cu- is crucial for, when, for men and women. Air and water quality, also very important. Young ladies should stay away from birth control drugs, pills, injections, suppositories. They increase testosterone levels, they cause deadly blood clots, they mutate genes, and will rot titties and vaginas from the inside out. I do wonder whether the author of this book, or what he would think of, for example, a copper IUD, given that it's non-hormonal, if that would be a form of contraception that he would, wouldn't have a problem with. But that's, uh, look, I don't really care enough about his answer to, to dig into that too deeply. The protagonist now is much more 
paranoid. He's talking about how he travels around and uses cafe Wi-Fi far away from where he lives on a cheap new laptop to avoid surveillance. He's deactivated all of his email and web accounts. He's not using social media, not buying anything online. I assume he's still willing to use 4chan, though. He got another mobile phone. He knows that they are listening, but doesn't care. And he's making a list of people he doesn't like that he'll kill when society collapses. The nebulously defined malignant, malevolent force, them, uh, is they're, they're trying to manipulate many people, including our protagonist. Not clear what for. That answers that. That's never really answered in this book. The mystery man who beat up Charlotte was real, so says the protagonist, probably someone that they wanted gone. And because M didn't kill him, someone else must have done so. And it is interesting with this. So the paranoia, it does beg the question, is is Master psychotic, going through some sort of paranoid psychosis? Because the elements are there, this very magical thinking, seeing patterns in the world where patterns might not exist. However, just because I don't have that much trust in the author, sort of in the, the author's command of the craft, I can't really say whether this is actually meant to be portraying mental illness or whether it's just that he's not writing it well. But yeah, I'll put that out there. Maybe this is, um, maybe the, this whole thing is in Master's head. More about this plot, so he seems to think that there's a connection between Ava's death hoax and Charlotte seducing Master, then disappearing. He also seems to think that Ava like, that Ava didn't come up with the idea of faking her own death because she's too lazy. They must have wanted Master to forget about Ava and fall in love with Charlotte, which is why they, um, they put that, that plan into her head to fake her own death to break off ties with Master. What Master's really angry with Ava over is that she cut off contact with him and he, he hates her and keeps telling you that he wants to kill her and rape her corpse. Spends a lot of time insulting Ava's art and Charlotte reappears in Montreal, uh, completely healed. Her online presence is larger than before and there's just no evidence that she ever had lived with, um, lived with our protagonist or that she was ever hurt, or that anything happened. Master seems to think that Charlotte is a crucial piece of their infrastructure. And he regularly thinks about going back to Montreal and kidnapping Charlotte, and he still loves her. I should add, this is still... This part of the book is still in this question-and-answer format, and it's been getting pretty clumsy. It's a clumsy way of bringing the reader up to speed with things that should have been developed within the plot. Like, the whole weed-growing thing earlier went on for way too long, didn't go anywhere. And the time spent there could have instead been dedicated to fleshing out this, this subplot or what, you know, what might end up being the whole plot in, in terms of establishing this world where there is this conspiracy going on or potential conspiracy theory going on. Uh, conspiracy theory. Where there's this potential conspiracy going on. It's, uh, it's, it's just a fundamental problem with the pacing of this book. And then there's, oh, there's an aside about dietary advice. Seems pretty paleo. Did Mike Mark rib this too? I don't know. Still, even if he did, he did it better. That weird section at the end of Gothic Violence where he starts telling you about your diet and how to drink raw milk properly. Here we go. He's got a, he's got a bit about Australia, so naturally I will quote that. 
If you meet someone from Queensland, all regions, and they bounce around like an animated kangaroo, don't fall into the trap of thinking he, she, preferred gender pronoun is outgoing, extroverted, a social people person, what have you. Australian accents, like established middle-class British accents, for the most part, sound comforting. Don't be deceived by the Queenslander. Upon closer inspection, you will realise that it's nothing more than a typical piece of funny-talking, white, fella, cultured bogan trash. After his diatribe against Queenslanders, he, uh, he starts listing SIPs, secretly influenced persons, so people who might be controlled by them, but aren't, aren't really aware of it. He says Nathan probably isn't a SIP. He says Tom is a SIP. Complains about Tom quite a lot, actually. Calls him a hack, says that his book is freshly aborted, cheesy, dick-dick, fromage, curd-wad, etc., 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 etc. There are a lot of sections of that book where he just lists out fairly tired insults like that. Pretty boring. And then he gets back to talking about Miri. He says that he never had sex with Miri, never messaged her afterwards. Uh, said that those were all fake diary entries. I quote, Reader, I'm sorry. I lied. I never went to Muri's house that day. We didn't kiss. We didn't have sex. She never texted incessantly like a jilted lover. I wrote those fake entries to make myself appear super jazzy crotch, like some sort of alpha as fuck big swinging dick sexual predator. I also wanted to heat up that section because it was reading like a little meow meow pussy with the cute emails. He uh, showed Miri the manuscript of Behead All Satans and it scared her off because this book is so wild, so mind-meltingly transgressive that no one could possibly read it and be the same again. It then, it then becomes evident that, uh, that Miri and her husband are trying to make the, the author of this book, of Behead All Satans, change the sections where Miri appears, otherwise they're going to sue the author. Yeah, oh, I should say her husband's Seth, because Seth and Miri are, as, as one would expect from a book of this sort, every unkind Jewish stereotype you could possibly think of. And this section goes on for so long. I, I get the impression that the author felt that having a section referencing, referencing inaccuracies within the text and that the text is being changed because the author is being sued by real people included in the text was extremely clever, but it just doesn't, doesn't go anywhere. It just feels really bloated. I quote, Wow. Yeah, I blame myself. I do. It's my fault for writing her, and as an aside, Miri, into this thing, into the book. Why do I need to have her in the book? And then, as a question, Hey, that's my job. So why do you need to have her in the book? And answer, I don't know. Too much bird walking here. Sorry, reader. A thousand pardons. That's why the emails are mega redacted. Fucking lame. Again, this is a problem I alluded to earlier, that just acknowledging that certain parts of the book don't work very well doesn't make them magically work. I just The book would be so much better if they just removed all of these things. Anyway, uh, there's a section about uh, how society is going to collapse, how law-abiding citizens unprepared for the butt-rape that is to come, but that a uh, master is, young white women will be traded like gold. I was getting real, I studied the blade vibes here, and um, yeah, argues with himself about the use of real or change names in the book, this goes nowhere, doesn't add anything to the book, keeps adding to his kill list, which he'll act on during the great upheaval that is inevitably coming. This selection, this selection, this section keeps turning into 
faux profound ramblings. He talks about how he wants to destroy all sorts of state institutions, multinational institutions. This isn't revolutionary or anything new. It just comes across as painfully, aggressively adolescent. I quote, A gallon of gasoline and a fire source are the only things you need to make a difference in this shitty fucked up world. Inferno served with a piping side of ruinous death. That's reality. You can make it, you can make it a reality. We choose our reality every second of every hour. Who did you choose to be today? Who will you choose to be tomorrow? A professional victim again? It's easy, it's commonplace, to exist between the time of your birth and death like a runny, spurting gob of compliant miscarriage. You have your things, your surrogate genitals, and you think they make you happy. You watch people, sometimes innocent, get the shit kicked back into their heads. It's fun to watch suffering, it's entertaining. Swarms of human bugs crawling out from under their urban slums, mad and delusional, with the unified coherence of an ugly, fella child. They rage, they drool, they scuttle around like drugged cockroaches in a bottle for your amusement. That's fun to watch because it's easy. I get it. Jacking off to tragedy is so much easier than trying to achieve individual freedom. Individual freedom requires brains and yarbles and blood. You better get some before it's over. When the clock strikes midnight, into the lake of fire go the weak. And after, uh, after the dust settles, autistic proles inherit the earth and wander the crumbling urban wasteland, raping and killing anything that breathes. They pollute the gene pool back to amino glop, Le Fin. Yeah. And so, okay, here, he hits on some real fears of mine, in this case, technological authoritarianism, but almost like everything else in this book, it's treated in a very toothless way. So I quote, the authoritarian technocratic goons will not stop until they're, complete, they're in complete and total control. A million digital eyes watching you. Tens of thousands of weaponized, unmanned aerial vehicles hovering up there in the clouds just waiting for a reason. The henchmen robots are here. Don't blame the machines. There are people behind the curtain, twisting dials, flipping switches, pulling triggers. Always people. Forever it's been people. Power-tripping fellas and fellas and fella fellas and fella fellas. Horrible people. They make the rules. They, they make the rules. They do the damage. It's mostly tyrannical fishing expeditions, organised crime, psychic vampires, death cults, and pedophile network mission creep running the asylum. So hurry the fuck up. The fellery abounds at breakneck speed. Yeah, the chapter goodbye, it's just more meta shit. Addressing the reader, talking about how much fun the author is having writing this book. How he wishes he could have more central characters, but he set himself a rule not to have multiple central characters. It's like, dude, I don't care how you wrote this book. I, I will only care how you wrote it if it were written well. There's another title page, Behead All Satans, wherein the author reveals that MNMDR stands for Master Necro Mega Damage Rape Face. <sighs> yeah, oh, fuck. Now, there, there's a section where Ava is suing Master for libel, false light, harassment, stalking, Master's staying at his parents' place, so a thick envelope turns up at their front door. It's relevant legal documents from Ava's lawyers. And she's suing because of the draft of this book, Behead All Satans, that M sent her years ago was so fucking wild. So, I quote, Unlimited jurisdiction. Demand for jury trial. Chop chocolate freaky deaky dirt bird sprinkle tits. The bulk of the complaint contains scanned, zoomed-in sections of the book. This book, the early draft that I gleefully mailed to Ava. 
There are screen grabs of practically every email and social networking instant message that I sent her in the year 2003, 2004, 2005, January 2006, and September, October 2012. The captions. Reader, the captions. Gloriously bureaucratic lawyer fella captions underneath everything. Hyper absolute. They contextualized the mother-loving shit out of my nefarious campaign of torment. The totality of the document is bizarre. I like it. I like it a lot, and I'm sort of jealous. Minus the legalese, and after one or two passes to flesh out the meat, this would make a lovely 63-page companion novella. I wish I could incorporate it into the book somehow. Oh, wait. I just did. I'm not a... F- I'm, I'm just repeating myself. I'm not fundamentally against self-ware writing, but in this book it feels like such a crutch, a way to deflect criticism, and not a sincere attempt to say something with this literary technique. Anyway... According to Master Ava's too lazy to come up with this lawsuit herself, so it must be them as well. Maybe they want Master to kill the lawyers who sent this this envelope of legal documents. Uh, he has this section where he talks about how much fun it is to tell people to go kill themselves on the internet. I suppose it, it is somewhat interesting to see the mind of someone whose internal life has been so sculpted by 4chan. But it's not interesting enough to sustain a novel of this length. It might be interesting enough to sustain five A4 pages. So I'll read an excerpt here where the, uh, where the magical thinking aspect comes more into the foreground, where, where the psychosis theory of Master Rapeface becomes more plausible. Like th- This section is far from good, but in the context of this book, it's uh, like it qualifies as a good section, I suppose. I quote: Walking to Seven Eleven at around midnight, I almost tripped over a white shoebox in the middle of the sidewalk. It had numerous holes punched in the lid and a written request that looked like it had been scrawled by an autistic eight-year-old. I think they punched the holes first, then decided to write the note. Please help this bird. I nudged the box with my foot, and something moved. Sick or wounded birds that fit in shoeboxes don't rally. They die. I picked up the box and carefully placed it in a trash can. Damn litterbugs. Warning. Total mindfuck program alert. 2.17am. Can't sleep. I keep reading the complaint over and over. Then it slammed me like a goddamn horror movie. The evil in the kitchen... The evil in the room is palpable. I've got goosebumps right now and the cult is next to me on the kitchen table. I'm tapping it with my left hand. Both G33s are here keeping us company. Parker, Hills, Tavares and Beachman, please help this bird. So PHTB is the, uh, is the abbreviation he keeps saying. Look, for listeners, that might not strike you as a particularly interesting excerpt, but that might give you an insight into what it's like to read this book, that that qualifies as interesting plot development. Anyway, he, um, the author talks more about publishing this book, Behead All Satans, which exists within the novel and in the real world as a PDF on my computer. <sighs> There's just more talk about wanting to kill Ava, wanting to kill Monica, one of the lawyers working for Ava, wanting to kill Charlotte. So he decides he, um, he wants to kill Ava before she turns, I think before she turns 39 or 40. Yeah, 39. 17 days until her birthday. He's got a list of people he wants to kill before Ava's birthday, including Ava's parents and Darian. He'll kill Ava last. So he collects some money, 
guns, food, vitamins, ammo, puts a mattress in his car and um, sets off on a road trip, notionally to kill people, but it, it, it doesn't really happen. So I quote, At long, long, long last, it's finally going to happen. I finally get to kill my Ava, desire, convenience, the supreme moment. I must remember to remember to have molecular focus during her murder. Very important that I absorb every detail, large and small. Devour colours, shapes, emotions, actions, fluids, textures, sounds, all of it. I must remember the entire reality of the event. The memory of her death will feed me until I die. It will beat my heart. It will breathe for me. It will be the air. One, drinking her delicious tears. Two, atomic mountain blasting her vagina. Three, obliterating her dead anus and rectum. Four, super deep cocking all the holes, touching all the walls. And the fifth point is, is crossed out. Five, killing the bitch cunt ferociously quick. Yeah, and then there's just more talk about how, oh, he's changing all the names in Behead All Satans to avoid, um, to avoid legal problems for his brother. And then he'll say, oh, no, I haven't changed it. I'm just being an unreliable narrator. And then say, oh, maybe I did change it. And it's just, it's a, it's a lot of, um, it feels like the author chasing his own tail, and I don't care about it. <laughs> anyway, yeah, now he's, uh, he rents a three-story Victorian home, a home in the middle of nowhere with Jack, his rescue cat, whom he later kills. His, uh, now he just keeps getting more cats and killing them. Uh, he uh, decides to make an indie art book under the pseudonym Poppy Margaret Springfield called Heaping Globs of Joy and Wonder. Talks a bit more about how all, how all women want to be raped. And he includes in this section Poppy's artistic statement. It's actually kind of funny. The problem is... There are just so many asides like this which don't go anywhere that even though some of this is kind of amusing, I just don't give a shit about it. I mean, I'll, I'll quote it, but... yeah. So, he says, My work results from exploring and liberating the labyrinthine interactions between humans and their decisions. I do not wish to simply observe, to see the world as I literally see it and then render that, vis that visual perception onto paper. Instead... I hope to move beyond the mere autobiographical techniques of the past and have thoughtfully appropriated multiple perspectives for the creation of the images within this collection. Anyway, I don't know, there's just more stuff like that. It actually reads like some of the, um, the, the, the university art projects, the descriptions of them that I've seen. That, that, that sort of satire is sort of amusing. I think it is also in part because my standards lowered so much by this point in the book that that did qualify as... Somewhat amusing. However, there were then almost 100 pictures by Poppy, each of which was an A4 page in size. They're shitty black and white line drawings. They look like they were done in MS Paint. This is funny, the combination of the, 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 very, the very pretentious description of the artwork with these shit black and white pictures. However, maybe one or two of these images would have had a much greater effect because... I ended up skimming over them. There are almost 100 of them. I just didn't pay attention to the, the last fucking 97 of these things or however many. He does say that the last picture in this series isn't part of heaping globs of joy and wonder. It's a still life that Master sketched of Jack right after cutting off his nose and head. He feels bad after or having killed Jack, says that he's not going to tell you, the reader, why he killed Jack. 
And, uh, I mean, I guess this is an attempted intrigue, but I just don't give a shit about Master Rapeface. So <laughs> that just falls by the wayside. I would need to care more about the protagonist, want to know more about their motivations. I also quote, Reader, I think I'm done. For really real this time, there's no longer any point to it, to the scribbling. My arc has plateaued. Did I have an arc? Whatever. Don't think about it. Occasional bloops and bleeps, but so what? Who cares? Nothing new. Stories need to evolve or else they die. So I guess I'm dying. And it just comes across as insincere. If the author really thought that there was no arc, nothing to be found in Master's story, then why write it? Maybe there's something to be interested in here, but I just I can't see it and I can't be bothered seeing it. There's then a section a bit later on called The Great Upheaval. It seems to be written after society has collapsed. The police pushed people too far. People started killing the police. Things escalated from there. Master watches from far away. He's jealous that people are killing each other for fun and he can't take, take part in it. This part also feels toothless. There's minimal lead up. feels weightless. He then um, he explains how he survived the apocalypse. So I quote, And yes, you are correctly wondering. Where was I throughout, right? How did I escape the apocalypse? How did I avoid becoming a casualty? How did I survive? Simple. I'm not a woman. Women, or nature's victim, were experts in victimology. Natural-born pathological liars. They excelled at cognitive overload while fabrication sewage gushed at regular intervals from their quivering, yapping orifices. When the hour of forced cocks and so-called barbaric killings arrived, they finally, at long goddamn last, fulfilled their true purpose. I think they did. I know they did. They did. I wish I could have been there to see those naked mole rat faces. Their eyes when certain death became apparent. What a magical thing to witness. It probably wasn't as much fun as I like to imagine. Sadly, Full-scale, all-out dissociation before being executed is a fairly common natural occurrence thanks to humorless mammal defense mechanisms. I bet some of the more delusional rat cows were brimming with abnormal levels of smugness and enthusiasm as they waited to be killed. I bet the deranged voices in their heads convinced them of many, convinced many of them that breathing was another fascist patriarchal conspiracy. No big deal, a fat ugly voice may have blurted. Death's nothing but another sex sexist, rapist, chauvinistic, penis supremacist rape culture of rapers. Slut-shaming, fat-shaming, misogynistic social construct. Stupid bitch cunts. They ruin everything. So that's how we survive the apocalypse. By... <laughs> Charlotte's dead, either metaphorically, you know, dead to master, or literally, maybe both. Master finds that reading and writing help him stay stable in this new dark age. He collects books. He talks about how much he likes reading these books, how he has to kill to survive, um, which he's said numerous times in the story. He's basically just copy-pasting what he said previously. Practices killing, so he's already ready to kill. He, um, he tends to stay inside. He sends automata outside. These automata might be reanimated corpses. I'm not sure. And uh, now there's this section called Breed. He talks about his girlfriend, who is pregnant. She's black, not from the USA. His girlfriend knows about the heinous things he did between February 2010 and August 2012, which he won't tell the reader about. She likes it. He, uh, he complains about Ava a bit more, says that um, she had $54,960 in lawyer's fees, that her skin doesn't look good, and that the lawsuit didn't work. 
he um he talks about how he wants to repopulate the earth or he he wants to breed an army with his girlfriend um and their children will have to swear unswerving loyalty to master um yeah this this part doesn't really go anywhere there's a chapter called the end which is obnoxious talks about how difficult it is to write endings says that he's tried writing the intro that you're reading right now many times uh <laughs> okay and then we've got a chapter called all clear where um where master kills the alon family that is miri seth and their two children bella and elora he stabbed them all in bed drank their blood he made sure that the reader knows that he didn't have sex with their bodies, largely because his girlfriend would be jealous. This is the black woman that he's trying to breed an army with. Took a steel locked box from the Aelon family's house that looked like it was placed there by them. And this seems to be taking place before the collapse of society that he was discussing in a, in a previous chapter. Because like Nathan, Nathan's calling Master... Um, talking about that movie Hellhole again, saying it's going to be financed. So this book's all over the place, but not in an interesting way. He complains a bit more about women in their late 30s having children. He keeps um, playing that tired meta-narrative game of teasing his name, the name of his girlfriend, but he's not going to tell you. Again, this sort of thing works if you give a shit about the characters. If you don't, it, it just falls flat. He keeps saying that he's ending the book as well, but the book keeps going. I got excited when he said that, and I thought... There's going to be a bunch of blank pages, but I had to continue reading. So in this this metal box that he found in the in the Alons' house before he killed them, or after he killed them, that he thinks they planted there, he opens it. It's full of cockroaches, a Ziploc bag. In the Ziploc bag is an unaddressed Christmas card made by Charlotte, old crayon drawing that might have been by Master, oil pastel, a letter. He copies these documents, puts them on a flash drive, He's also surprised that no one has noticed that the Alon family have all been killed. He goes to kill Ava, kind of out of nowhere. Like when I say out of nowhere, it's not like he hasn't been talking about it for the entire book, but it just sort of happens. It's this strange, it's this strange superposition of something being talked about overly much, but also not led up to at all. So it's fairly unsatisfying. Anyway, he he comes to Ava's house. He chokes her out, ties her up. He complains again that she's ugly now and she's too old. He, uh, he notices that Ava has makeup on and she wouldn't have gone to bed in makeup. This is at night and it makes him suspect that something strange is happening. He keeps telling Ava about how he's going to torture, rape and kill her. Ava apologises and Master frees her and leaves, which um, I was somewhat surprised by, but... Given how much blue-balling takes place in this book, of the author telling you that he's, he's finally going to kill Ava, but, he's, but then he doesn't, I guess it shouldn't have surprised me. The next night, M uh, Master goes to a whore's apartment, I quote. Maybe it was Charlotte's. Anyway, he kills her, searches the apartment, takes a thank-you card from her apartment, some sort of code, or it is some sort of code. When he gets home from doing this, he finds a small white cardboard box on his doormat with no postal markings, and inside is a white stone with an engraved name, and Master says he's not allowed to divulge the name, and it's tedious. Like, I've got a quote written here, I just... I'm getting bored reading my own notes for this book, which is a problem. Anyway, it's 
basically like he's not allowed to reveal what is written on the white stone or any of the things that have been sent to him. They have um, sent him this parcel. They thank Master for his service, say that he's going to get punished if he um, if he reveals what they've sent to him. He says he blames Ava for this. He says that um, she must have had something to do with sending this because one of the letters reads the monkey and the lemur in French, and only Ava knows those nicknames. She is the monkey. Uh, she is the lemur. Master is the monkey. On the stone is written Constance F. F. Only you and I know the origins of our mutual versions of Frankenkunst and Frost. Like, like, there's probably a mystery at play here. But I just did not give a shit enough to think about it very much. Anyway, uh, the the author, Master, reveals these details. He puts them in Behead All Satans that he was told explicitly not to put in, otherwise he'd be punished. So he gets punished. There's talk, he's talking about killing Ava again. Constant talk about wanting to kill her, but with almost no action. He's just not building tension. It's boring. I don't care about Ava. I don't care about Master. There's some sort of drug-induced nightmare, perhaps, as punishment from them for Master revealing what was written on that stone when he published it in Behead All Satans. He escapes to a forest where he feels fine. Anyway, fuck, I just... Yeah, he kills a lot in the forest to stay sharp. Fortunately, we get to the last chapter in the book called I'm All Aglow. He sets someone on fire, takes a tablet that this now-dead man was carrying. It's some sort of poison. Then he finds an antidote to the poison, but the antidote is taken by a bunny-headed man wearing a rabbit mask. A dreamlike sequence ensues where M chases this man in a rabbit mask and eventually gets eaten by rats. And uh, I will quote the end of the book. Fella, fella. Bitch cunt, cunt scab, venomous snake, bugs and rats, that's you. You are pure filth. You are pure evil, festering and rotting, and I hate you. I will always hate you, Satan. Death to this world, death to all worlds that fester and rot. Death to you. Death to you, Satans, festering and rotting. Death to me. They're eating me alive. I must die now. I'm about to die, and it's the happiest day of my pathetic life. Soon I will be free. I will be reborn. I will find my family. I will join my family. I will help them rid the world of you. I will help them remove the heads of all Satans. And the book ends here. That was a <laughs> that was an underwhelming ending to a, an underwhelming book. In terms of things I have to say about this book, having, having gone through the plot and given you an idea of what it's like to read, I don't have much. Like, I just don't feel like this book made much of an impact on me. Going into this episode, I was actually, I was feeling somewhat generous because I'd, I've, I'm writing novels, I've yet to publish anything, but it is, it's really difficult to write novels and I have a lot of respect for people who make things, but when I started reading over my notes of this, that, that generosity evaporated. This is a much more negative episode than I I'd planned because it's just such an irritating book, man. Increasingly, I have come to realize through this podcast that what really upsets me 
is when an author bores me. I would much prefer to be shocked or offended than bored. However, that's what this author's managed. This book's just dull. In terms of recommendations, would I recommend this book? No. If if you are a terminally online young man and uh, love 4chan or similar sorts of websites or online communities and you really want to read a novel written by and for people like you, you're better off reading something by Mike Ma. In my limited experience with this literary form of Chancor, Mike Ma is probably the person doing it best, although there are probably better people to to get get advice from or recommendations from than me, given that I don't particularly like this style of novel. But Behead All Satans comes across as sort of a, a poor man's gothic violence or harassment architecture, a poor man's American psycho. If you want to read... Oh, see, it's, it's, it's doing things that are done in American Psycho or Mike Ma's books, but worse. If you like the Chaney stuff, read Mike Ma. If you like Patrick Bateman, read American Psycho. Uh, th- those, t- those books obviate the need to read Behead All Satans. I don't have... Uh, don't have much more to add after this episode. Thanks for listening. Thanks to everyone in the Discord for continuing to interact with us. Um, if you want to hear more of Levi or me talking shit, we do so fairly regularly in the Discord. Shout out to everyone there. Thanks for listening. <laughs> don't have much more to add. Thank you.